I grew up in the art world and um, and then I had a, a severe accident when I was uh, 11 years old and lost my eyesight over it. Also, actually, I wrote a book about this, which is coming out. It's titled uh, Blinder Gallerist, which means uh, blind gallerist. Kind of a joke on or like a wordplay with a blind passenger. You're quite good in something, but you always think that you're not good at it. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Johann Koenig is one of Europe's most entrepreneurial art dealers. He started his gallery in Berlin at 20 years old. Now, 20 years later, he has grown into spaces in Berlin, London, Monaco, Seoul, Vienna, Tokyo, and the Decentraland metaverse. More than that, Koenig Gallery publishes a magazine, produces a podcast, and has launched a digital platform for NFTs and fractional art ownership called Misa. We'll have another podcast on Misa in the future. In this episode, we asked Johan what it means to be a gallerist in an age when the art market is changing how dealers build audiences and represent artists, and the nature of art itself is changing rapidly too. My first question is, it seems like being an art dealer in the 21st century means also being an art entrepreneur. I'm not sure that's actually any different from the way it used to be. You ha always had to have uh, an eye to either creating publications or uh, running your own events. And it's a very much a, a sort of startup kind of business, you know, going not just back to Byler, but, uh, you know, the guys in the 19th century. But I'm curious to hear from you, your perspective on sort of these, you know, the new opportunities and how one as a art dealer representing artists positions oneself uh, in sort of this, this more complex world. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's um, our 20th gallery uh, anniversary, even though I'm, I'm only 40 years old, I started um, quite some time ago. And at this time, I mean, this was pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook even, I think. So it, it was a different uh, world then and far away from Bitcoin or crypto or blockchains. And I think back then, uh, which sounds funny, um, a gallery was really uh, the market access. So if you were an artist and you had no representation, you hardly had any... Uh, window or uh, possibility other than your direct peer group, you know, uh, which is funny because we have this Rotary Club here in Germany, I think worldwide. And yeah. and I remember, you know, I grew up in a in a in a in a family household. My father is a curator. My mother is an illustrator. Uh, Gerhard Richter was a best man. I think that he, my father was very much, it was very good or bad, you know? So there were great artists and bad artists. And 
and there were these categories of rotary artists, which were artists who, you know, were probably more entrepreneurs and, and, and which I think doesn't say anything about the quality of their art, uh, just that they took the initiative in their own hand and uh, because they had no one else to distribute the work, they just did it. And, and this is a reality we see, I think, in the NFT world now too. You know, that, that, that there's this giant amount of, of creators, artists, however you want to call them, they just find their way to market their uh, creative outcome, which I think is great. You know, I, I, what I never, I mean, the, my, my gallery um, name was Johann König Berlin. When I started in 2002, very much influenced by Konrad Fischer, uh, his gallery name was Konrad Fischer Zeig uh, originally, which means Konrad Fischer uh, shows or displays. So I wanted to avoid the name gallery. It's also interesting when I went to school, then my father was a curator. No one had this, the, the silentest idea what a curator is. Today, curator is someone who does a selection for um a retail store too you know so um Every, everybody's a curator now everything is curated yes yeah and this term didn't exist you know it was exhibition maker uh, this is how, how how we called it um i did not want to be a gatekeeper so the motivation for me to open a gallery was really much to um develop careers manage artists help them produce and um facilitate their dreams and ideas and 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 eventually make work possible which wouldn't be possible without our commitment and support but not to tell um what's good or bad or um, um and, and so i think it's uh, 20 years uh, forward i think it's super interesting that this independence on both sides galleries as well as artists side um are uh, of course, a big challenge, but also a great chance because, again, if you did not have a gallery, you did not have market access. And if you did not have a good gallery, considered good, or, you know, uh, you did not have a market presence on Art Basel or on, on, um, in, in one of the very important fairs. And, and with also what you guys do at Life Art, it's changing it, you know? So, yeah. um, and, and also this, I remember I, I, my, my, my main focus was to get in Art Basel, you know? Yes. And, and yes. that was like the triumph. And uh, that was like the, the, the year after year, um, I like measured my star. own. Yeah. And, and, but what's crazy is that you, you, you measure your self-esteem, your, um, um, and this is, I think we all can learn so much from artists because artists, they focus on their work. They have to find a language, um, they have to develop it, and then they um, um, have to get, make it better and better. And then and, and they take so much risk in doing this because they usually go very far before anybody acknowledges anything of what they're doing. You know, often even they have to overcome critique and, and things like this. So then I found myself in, in, in judging my own quality um, based on if the committee would let me join uh, the fair or not. And I think that these standards, because of the how the world has changed, uh, are changing. And I think that's a good thing, but also a challenging thing, because if you as a gallery have to um, provide more than the simple market access, you have to 
um, uh, yeah, step up your uh, proposition. What I hear you saying and what, what I think I, I also see broader in what's happened over the last 20 years is y you are make, starting lots of different businesses, whether it's the, you know, your magazine or the what you do on social media or your own podcast or, or Bisa or any of these other aspects or opening new galleries in different uh, uh, cities. Uh, you're doing all of that to develop uh, more of an audience, to create greater connections to collectors. And it, it's it's turning it around where we view galleries primarily as being representatives of the artists. Over time, increasingly, they've become uh, aggregators of an audience. And the access you're providing is not the to the market for the artist so much as to for the collectors to the um, artists themselves, so, you know, that, that you can gain access to these uh, artists for people who have a relationship with you, have worked with you, you know, have bought from you. Yeah, I think it's more driving from uh, in the, my, my background because I, I, I grew up in the art world and, um, and then I had a, a severe accident when I was uh, 11 years old. I played with firecrackers and lost my eyesight over it. Um, also, actually, I wrote a book about this, which is coming out um, uh, very relatively soon in English. It's uh, titled uh, Blinder Galerist, which means uh, blind gallerist, uh, which is a, a kind of a joke on or like a wordplay with blind passenger. So because it was also a little um, um, this complex, uh, how would you call it? Um, uh, that you think you uh, that you are able that you're quite good in something, but you always think that you are not good at it. So and so syndrome. I forgot the name now. We call it imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Exactly. Exactly. So um, and coming from this um, world, um, sort of elitist um, world, but at the same time, um, my father had no proper art historic uh, education, but fled the military service, worked with Warhol um, and so on. And, and um, me growing up in this, then my brother went to New York very young to open his gallery. So um, re really as insider as you can be, um, for me, art was really a strong um, support source, you know, going through this difficult time and um, and then as a teenager, I discovered like my own uh, perspective on art through this teacher in the blind school. So I really thought this that, that art is such an outsider in our cultural landscape compared to other cultural fields such as music, theater, uh, acting. Um, and I think that really my my goal is to make art more accessible on all allies and then i noticed that uh, on all uh, aisle, uh, sides of the aisle and then i noticed that it was very difficult to create any attention um for the pure uh, context of an art exhibition or the the, the the body of work of an artist so then i uh, started to sort of market it or communicate it uh, combined with with other things and that worked out quite well so um uh, and for example, the podcast I'm doing, speaking with artists about their practice, um, now it's been um, more, uh, which is great, you know, a, a new um, development. But I think for a lot of people, artists are still um, 
from another planet or different uh, category. And I think it's very important that we that, that non-art world people notice uh, it's also a market, it's also an industry, it's also uh, human beings. Uh, and, and I think the more transparent we are about the mechanics, the more easy it is to grow this, um, to grow art, the art market in general, to have give more people, artists the capability to make a living of their art um, and just grow it um, um, globally, which I think is a, um, is automatically happened. But but it's also important to then uh, take the moment to to help shape the future of the art world. Well, it's interesting that artists have become either through collaborations or just inspiration um, in terms of having larger audiences, uh, it less direct their effect and more, you know, almost being like um, paragons. People see their work and are inspired by it and do things that are either too close knockoffs or, you know, a, a, a next inspiration uh, uh, from it now, I think more than, than ever. And, you know, there's, there's become a role uh, in the creative economies for, you know, art as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, it's like original science research as opposed to engineering and, and all that. So it's people doing sort of pure creative uh, concepts that other people uh, turn into, um you know, uh, more sort of culturally broadly uh, uh, available. And we see this with, you know, music and, and movies and all. There's much more of a connection between artists and those fields uh, today than there, it feels like, than there were in the past, going to sort of your comment about um, artists sort of dealing with uh, the public in a different way. Absolutely. When the purpose of the gallery used to be more of a um, providing a certain access um, to a community or uh, client base now that's still very much uh, important uh, but i think more important now is to provide space so i really think that our main role is to provide space with the galleries we are running we have this uh, focus on running gallery spaces in very unusual locations so we have a very our sort of flagship gallery here is in berlin in a former catholic uh, church brutalist concrete building in London, it's a former um, car park. In uh, in West London, in uh, Vienna, we are in a former travel agency or like a train station office. In uh, Seoul, we are in a luxury fashion store. In we have our own floor and a rooftop sculpture garden. In Monaco, we are in a uh, more like a private designed um, house. And then we have a gallery space in Decentraland as well on the um, Ethereum blockchain. And, and we provide these spaces to artists so they can produce work to show, show it there. And then even take this idea of providing space further. Space is also a magazine, a podcast, an Instagram feed. Um, but all it's, it's all a stage we invite artists to present their work at. So you mentioned earlier, uh, Conrad Fisher, you know, being a show, right? You're an impresario and you're as much a producer uh, collaborating with the artist. And I assume also that means, you know, you have an economic relationship that allows you to either plan on a show by show basis or on some longer term uh, basis, how you are both going to, you know, pay back the cost of putting on the, the, the show, but also benefit from the success of it. Yes, I mean, um, it's, it's, um, 
it also sort of changed. Uh, we do represent artists and have a very um, uh, really manage their careers, help them uh, develop it in a in a very narrow way, an old school way, where other galleries pay us uh, commissions and uh, and we are functioning a bit like a financier also for production. Um, but more and more, uh, we also started to do Kunsthalle-like exhibitions, sometimes with a more and uh, sometimes lesser financial um, incentive or interest. Um, so we collaborated with, uh, uh, we did an ex solo exhibition with Isa Gensken. We did a big uh, curated show um, of uh, digital uh, painting and sculpture or, or painting and sculpture in the digital era which was a museum-like uh, exhibition in the in the metaverse and in reality, actually one year ago already. Um, so we, um, it's also maybe because uh, the exhibition space appears more like a museum. So also 95% of the visitors who come in always think that it costs entrance uh, because of its recognition. That's interesting. I mean, I was going to ask, you know, uh, when you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, sort of basically hope, hosting spaces and all, you know, when you do a lot of the work that, that you do, it's not, there's no direct compensation uh, uh, for it. And it almost, you know, we are moving towards there are more of these sort of experience events around art. There was before the pandemic, and one presumes it will happen again, more of these um art as experience, uh, uh, you know, shows that in many cases are ticketed and, you know, you pay uh, a, a fee to go in and see, you know, the rain room or you were just saying this as, as it's sort of a shame they think that they have to pay to get in or is that a uh, an opportunity? I think that we need to be open uh, minded. And I, I think that's a problem I have with the art market or art world in general. I think it's super progressive from its content. Uh, because the artists are um, open-minded and and open thinkers, but I think that the industry structures are extremely conservative and very narrow-minded, which I really find a problem. But I, I hope it's it, it 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 will get better by force automatically, you know, by the evolution of of the outside industries disrupting uh, the the art world. So I think it's important to remain open to it. For me, it's very important at the, at the time being to, we, we had a big exhibition, for example, now with Rafik Anadol, where we had four hours uh, waiting lines outside. Um, and of course, this would have been a huge ticketed uh, success. But we worked so hard in the past years to um, make uh, people aware of the fact that there are free exhibitions to attend and 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 um you don't want to go backwards exactly take away the the anxiety and and um you know it's if, uh, I, it's even for insiders you know imagine um uh the cold atmosphere of a huge uh, um uh, chelsea gallery you know it's like you need it it, it takes courage to step over this uh, uh doorstep and and we really worked hard on using different strategies with musicians to to bring people into the art you know and to then leverage this to to make tickets uh, as long as we can avoid to we we don't want to 
And and you you have a show on right now <clears throat> at the old Tempelhof uh, Airport, right? There, and the hangars are now being converted into exhibition spa spaces. You have a Bernard Vinay show uh, taking place out, out there. Is that part of the same sort of broader looking for different sorts of spaces and being able to you know bring people to a place that they feel there's less. Uh, you know, resistance uh, uh, to crossing that threshold? Oh, that's um, that's not our exhibition. We gave some loans and provided some support, uh, but it's the exhibition of a foundation um, which is uh, doing big exhibitions. They did a big exhibition called Diversity United, which is traveling uh, the world. And this is um, the, I mean, the, the airport is a big um, uh, city political issue because Originally, they wanted to create. They, we have a huge housing problem in uh, in Berlin, and which is also interesting. Uh, talking about like the old old times, um, yes, in the, the exactly like in in the early two thousands, Berlin was like the El Dorado uh, because there was so much space. Everybody had giant apartments, um, and um, and we had this lucky moment where we were able to acquire this building here in uh, in Kreuzberg. The former church uh, complex, and we, there we have this. Uh, you know, the Berghain is a is a reused building. Our building is reused. Then there is a Boros collection in a former World War II bunker. So, so Berlin has a lot of these cultural, um, actually private cultural places. You know, and now um, the former airport. Um, um, uh, I think it has twelve hangars or something like this, and two of them are used now for two years for exhibitions. And um, and we just happen to be the representing gallery of uh, of Bernardini. I, I bring it up just because you know ever since the Bilbao Museum's success, there has been a long running trend towards using uh, culture as a economic driver for various uh, cities around the world. Berlin has traditionally been one of the art centers uh, of Europe the growth of your gallery there. I mean, is there another gallery from Berlin that has sort of uh, opened international outposts? I mean... Oh, yeah, I mean, of yeah. course, uh, Sprit Magas, they have galleries in London and LA, I think. Uh, Buchholz has one in New York. Um, uh, pro yeah, probably you're right. I mean, what's interesting, what you say is that tried multiple times back then when we started Gallery Weekend to have the city supported in, in any way, but it never really worked out. We wish uh, we would have more support there. Actually, I think that Germany is, uh, in Europe, the most terrible place to be an art dealer in entire Europe. Because, because, I mean, the greatest and the worst at the same time. Because the greatest artists have a lot of support here. Also in Berlin, in, in the Corona times, um, each artist had an um, immediate... Um, financial support of 5,000 euro, which of course is great for the whole, uh, I mean, there's no art market without artists. Huh? So, yeah. and then there is a social security for artists, which is very high in, in Germany. But the problem with the social security, for example, is whatever turnover I make with a Chinese artist, with an American artist, we always have to pay 5% on the turnover we are making, uh, we are sending to the artist even if they're outside uh, Germany because uh, the legislation says or the, the jurisdiction says so not to compete, you know, to keep it fair for German artists. Otherwise, 
they wouldn't trade German artists anymore. So it's it's a very old fashioned model, but uh, that really limits growth of the art market. Yeah, if you look at at the art market report, you see that Germany is a um, a huge deaccession field. You know, Polke Richter, Kippenberger, and so on. It's 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 there's a lot of coming from German collections. But not so much not being bought bought into yes, and that's a that's a, a European wide and also now a U.S. problem in some ways, not as much in the U- U.S. And maybe we should talk about Asia and uh, you know how you you have a an outpost in in Seoul. I assume you have either through fairs or coming to your exhibitions, um, you know, some substantial Asian clientele because. They are a significant portion of the art market uh, these days. Oh, absolutely! No, it's it's uh, interesting that we, we really run a global uh, business, and, and um, maybe also that's important to talk about. The role today of a gallery is very much how to place works where you know, and to really make sure somehow to plan a certain market career. Also, as as far as you can really control that, that's very more and more difficult. Um, but that's that's pretty much um, uh, also a new challenge, which always has been there, but now uh, even more than uh, than ever. We spend um, as much work on placing the work as as we used to spend on uh, selling it. Yes, I, I think I asked you uh, about uh, Huang Yuxing, whose market seemed to take a very big step up uh, in the last year or so with a some very strong sales and then a, a sort of monster sale in um, uh, uh, Hong Kong. And, and But that also was about the same period that you began to represent him and others in Europe began to uh, represent him uh, uh, in Europe. So uh, I don't know, going back to your earlier uh, point, are, are there European collectors buying uh, significant uh, Asian artists or discovering, you know, Asian artists through dealers like you and your peers? Yeah, I think that it's really more of a, even the market is so global, It's it, I think it still has a very local um, connection. And that sometimes you notice we, you have, for example, extreme high in demand artists on a, on a fair and you, you hold it back, you know, and you say, okay, let's see uh, what great candidate, um, public museum, whoever comes by, and then you notice that it doesn't really work like this anymore. You know, that there's no discovery on that level, but a million of people who have buying lists coming into the booth and uh, specifically asking uh, for this. You know, sometimes we have high in demand artists. We really try to sell to our legacy collections here in Germany uh, because we want to we want to build cultural um, uh, javit long livity. And, um, and and they don't understand why really there's this fuss about it, you know. So uh, it's 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 interesting how these different words um, are coming together. And it's not necessarily clear that that demand persists, right? There will be moments when uh, when lots of people want a specific artist, but then that may fade as they become, you know, focused on other artists or other uh, uh, things. And you're still either trying to support that ar- ar- artist or support the collectors who are uh, 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 trying to gain access there. I'm not so sure how, if that really is still uh, applicable because when you think of the the pure number population uh, in in China, and um, and if there's a strong trend and there's a strong interest, it's really a question of numbers. The the few works available, you know, even if an artist is prolific, it's so little. Uh, the population is, is so uh, large. 
I think it's a different momentum than in 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 this period time of of crabstraction, uh, um, which is a sort of a mean term, but but this. Um, Process-driven abstraction. Um, uh, you know, I think that you can't really compare the also now with the African American. Um, it's also different because it's a uh, it has a different uh, political uh, legitimation, and and it's finally a big problem which is, has been overcome. But I think looking at uh, strong demand from Asia, I don't think that the trends will fade as fast as they used to fade it in the past. In other words, they'll persist these trends longer. Yes, because in the pure, just pure mess of uh, number size of uh, active participants in the market. So if you have to wait for that work, you're you're there are enough people. No matter no matter how long the wait, there's there's a large enough waiting list to sort of keep uh, uh, at it for a while. I mean, waiting lists don't necessarily um, uh, are ever able to be fulfilled. Uh, I just think that this is driving prices extremely high. And do you feel like there is, you mentioned earlier, this sort of se- sense of trying to convince uh, local institutions that, you know, this isn't something you can necessarily take your time to decide on. Uh, on. Here's your opportunity. If you don't, there's lots of people ready to take this. Is that sort of a part of that same equation? It's just, you you know. Yeah, we take the time uh, to the um, unpopular vote of, of many clients. Um, it's 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 a bit different strategy than than many galleries, but we have no problem with having a show come to an end, and we haven't decided who to place a work with. I mean, often often the the prices of primary works are so relatively low, so it's fine to wait uh, until we really have the the perfect uh, uh, fit for it. But what we do, for example, I think unlike many others, at least we try to be super transparent about it. You know, we have a solo booth now with Ayako Rukaku in uh, Freeze, uh, LA, who also has a, a, I don't know, 30x multiple on the secondary market. And and then we just try to communicate as clear as possible why we are not just able to sell it. Um, and I think that's also important to do that that um, to to take also new possible customers or clients, collectors to share with them the mechanics of the art world and and how they how they function because often uh, we had a lot of um, younger beginning collectors and they were so turned off by never being able to buy anything and they just couldn't and, and they had this even with uh, like a board member from Deutsche Bank uh, you know their um, daughter had an internship at the gallery they were not art collectors they started to say ah, okay maybe we should buy some art <laughs> no you can't buy this no you can't buy that no you can't buy this as well no this one also is not available and then they're like what's going on here you know and i think that's part of our role as well to explain i guess what you were saying earlier about not wanting to be a gatekeeper you need to educate people on on what the representation involves it's not it's not your choices necessarily it's it's trying to help the artist achieve the artist goals and that may create frustration for many of the um, potential clients because they view it as uh, a luxury good. I should be able to walk in the store and say, I like that, uh, uh, sell it to me. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that we are, we, we are fulfilling our responsibility in providing guidance and, um, managing certain careers. You've, you've opened galleries in all of these locations, including the metaverse. You, you are in, uh, Seoul, 
what's uh, next? M more moving towards the uh, digital side of things? Are you looking for another space in another city? Or is it, you know, what opportunity arises? So we are really uh, heavily um, investing and, and building out our online um, activities with, with looking into um, very much the educational part and, um, you know, how to use uh, podcasts, interviews, sort of content marketing, I would, you would call it, studio visits, really much about explaining art and also explaining the business, but also experimenting with conversational commerce, you know, that you have like a live chat function. And, um, and I really do think that we as, as gallerists and dealers, uh, we don't have the scarcity effect uh, auction houses have. So we have to see, uh, you know, that's like pure competition on... Um, Deadline. Um, on deadline, you know, and 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 also can be quite brutal, uh, you know, because you the lower you you start, the more scarcity you create. Eventually, the price goes up, but it also might not be. Um, on also looking into the to the NFT space, not so much for content, but more for utility, uh, learning uh, utility logics. You know, you have to have this to get this. Uh, you have to have this to to even get into the room. Um, things like this, and that's something I think very interesting. And also, uh, I think it will fundamentally change the art market. The the idea of NFTs as as a membership, you know, the board apes that gives you access to the Discord ser server, you know, the being able to use your, the NFT as a way to create a kind of mezzanine level of participation in an artist's work or career seems one of the great opportunities. I mean, how to actually build that out, I think, is also a very complex, <laughs> difficult thing uh, uh, to do. But, you know, there, there are plenty of people, we were just talking about waiting lists, you know, you sort of want to be able to give people on the waiting list a something, even if you haven't been able to give them a work of art uh, yet. And it almost feels like things like NFTs, which would be tradable and all, might be that kind of mezzanine level of participation. Now, what I find interesting is uh, we get a lot of emails, um, applications of people um, saying why they are the good fit to buy something. And then there's all this list of what they have in their collection. And it's often a very uh, repetitive list, you know, George Kondo uh, and, and then so on. And um, first of all, I don't find that so inspiring. I mean, they, what, they, what, what, what people try to say with this is that they say, I bought this and I haven't part from it, even though it's a big gain opportunity, you know, and, but it doesn't say anything of the, uh, first of all, you can't really check. Um, and that's, that, that was what's possible with, with public wallets. Um, you just see if it's real or not. And, and, and um, I think a lot of people haven't really understood um, they see NFTs uh, or hear about it and they think of the images they know from people of, or um, they have seen in the media, but don't understand that it's, it's actually only technology, which is um, uh, providing uh, a, a lot of answers to these questions we are constantly busy with in the, um, in the art world, who to trust. Um, uh, lately, we could hear a lot uh, about uh, breach of contract, uh, non-resale agreements. Yep. All this you can, um, uh, uh, or um, I mean, the, the problem what we often forget being in the art world, and that's also why, for example, not because of my narcissistic disorder, 
uh, uh, where okay to become such of a um, more public figure is because I did not want to leave the media opinion, uh, at least in Germany, on art to Beltraki, who's this forger, or yep. to Helga Achenbach, who who, yep. who uh, had uh, uh, jail time for um, uh, screwing clients and telling you know this um, uh, overcharging them and um, and fractional ownership or you know shared investments like Inigo Philbrick did all these things. Uh, also, were actually the biggest victim was a German uh, uh, Berlin. Yes. Um, yes. Yep. Uh, you know. So and and all these 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 question of trust. Uh, they are solved to a wide extent um, uh, on the blockchain. And I think that we need to build uh, more trust uh, because uh, the public opinion about art, you know, has some has some issues to it. No, no, I, I, that actually, I think that is one of the most important things. You, uh, you put your finger on it. The, the popular perception of the art world uh, is all the negative. In fact, there's a, there's a romanticizing uh, of, you know, uh, one, it's an elite thing, therefore it's, it's morally bankrupt, it, the, the money overtakes any sense of the art. The thing about NFTs that makes them exciting is their, their ability to create community around them, and that's always been one of the central um, uh, goals in, in, um, for artists and in the art world is, is creating community around uh, e either the art or individual uh, artists. So it certainly seems like there are lots of opportunities there Though, but we're still very much early days. It's almost like we were talking about with the um, cities and all. I mean, a lot of this just happens. No one necessarily controls it. And uh, a lot of experimentation uh, uh, yields more of the results than anything else. No, and I think that transparency is a very important factor. Uh, and of course, there's also manipulation. Yeah, uh, where isn't? But and there's no, no not enough regulation at this point. Probably, I mean, in Germany, there's too much regulation. Uh, for us, it's really been uh, challenging. Well, that and regulation isn't necessarily the solution to these kinds of problems. Transparency is. I mean, I think the art world needs to build a level of trust, not have it imposed Im imperfectly from the outside when no one has a a good answer of what that regulation would look like. If if you had a good answer, that'd be one thing. But uh, so far, it's just regulation in, in the abstract form. Absolutely. But for example, I think we are the only gallery on Art Basel publicly showing uh, the prices we are asking. And it, it, it took us quite some time to, to, to really take this pass. But I really do think that it's because there's no reason to be... Um, ashamed of asking a lot of money for these artworks or not, you know, depending on the perspective. And I got that feedback from many clients that they don't dare to ask too often uh, on too many items uh, and all artworks. And that still there's this myth, they think that uh, everybody gets a different quote, yeah. you know, and I think that we can only uh, meet these um, cliches and uh, by being very transparent about uh, what we do. That's great. Uh, uh, this has been fantastic, Johan. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I don't want to take too much from the rest of your day. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I, love your, I love your podcast. I'm happy that it's um, uh, picked up now. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. 
For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.